Please take your Bibles and turn now to uh, Isaiah in chapter uh, 56. Isaiah chapter uh, 56. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Uh, Though this morning we're only going to look at uh, verses 1 and 2, but uh, for context, let's go ahead and read the the eight verses. So Isaiah chapter 56, beginning at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burned offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Amen. Let us pray. Lord our God, as we come now to study Holy Scripture and continue in our studies in Isaiah, we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may He help us to receive this Word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Amen. Well, Isaiah has just concluded a section of his letter to the exiles in which he has unfolded for them the deeply compassionate heart of God for sinners and sufferers, and in which he has approached them from various angles, compelling his readers to turn from their sin and rebellion against God and submit to Him in faith and dependence. There was a famous uh, 20th century Scottish minister who was a renowned evangelist. This was a man who was regularly called upon to preach evangelistic meetings, to preach at student events, and this man was called into the ministry later in life, and for much of his adult life, he had been a shepherd, and he looked like it. He was a big man, and he had big hands. And the story goes that as he would preach the gospel to his readers, he had a habit of reaching out to them, leaning over the pulpit to the point that many wondered if it would hold his weight. 
And with his enormous hand, as he pleaded with his congregation, he would sweep them as if trying to physically gather them into the kingdom of Christ. There's a sense in which that is what Isaiah has been doing. In the last section of his book, his gospel, we could say that he has been writing to these exiles. It's as if he's been, as if he's been read, reaching through his letter, uh, reaching through the hundred or so years that separated him from his readers, and he has been reaching through, trying to round up his readers like sheep and draw them into the kingdom of God. Do you remember how over the last few weeks we've seen how Isaiah gave us that great fourth and final servant song at the end of chapter 52 and into chapter 53? You remember how there he so vividly portrayed for us the sufferings of Jesus Christ in the place of His people, how He connected the dots for us and showed us there in that fourth servant song that really became the, the key to this whole thing, how it could be that a holy God could be so gracious to sinners. It was there in that fourth and final servant song that Isaiah laid the gospel bare for us and showed us how such grace and mercy and compassion in God could be free for the taking. It was the big question, wasn't it, that hung over all of this. Right? There was no question. His readers were notorious sinners. They were in exile because of their recalcitrant refusal to heed the warnings of the prophets and lay hold of the promises of the gospel. They had been determined to rely upon themselves rather than upon God. What is it that Paul writes in Romans 3? Let God be true, though every man a liar. Well, the MO of the Judeans, we could say, was let every man be true, though God be a liar. They were so ready to believe the latest fads. They were so ready to be drawn away by the latest per persuasive speaker. They were so ready to be drawn away by the promises of riches and power and significance that all the other kingdoms seemed to offer them. It seemed, as we saw so vividly in the first half of this book, that the Judeans were ready and willing to hear anyone and anything other than the Word of God preached through the prophets. So how then could there be grace so rich and full and free? Well, Isaiah laid it bare, didn't he? It, through the work of the servant, through the work of Jesus Christ coming, standing substitute in their place, bearing the guilt of their sin only by Him, being crushed for their iniquities, pierced for their transgressions, only if the Lord laid on Jesus Christ their iniquity. But you remember how we saw how his eyes moved on from that. And in the next couple of chapters, he then moved on to these vivid, rich, and full exhortations, imploring his readers to believe that gospel that he is preaching. You remember those images, the image of the barren woman, the image of the 
abandoned wife, the image of the broken down city. Images that convey just how sorrowful their situation and their sin had become. Just how destitute they had become in their sin. But you remember, Isaiah didn't do it to stick the boot in, but rather to show them that this gospel that he was preaching turns that barren woman into a a fruitful mother. It turns that abandoned woman into a joyful and restored wife. It turns that broken down city into, into a city that is rebuilt with precious stones and precious metals. Or the image that followed, that image of the beggar being invited in to sit at the king's feast. And then that image, he goes on to picture the whole of creation, the inanimate creation, bursting out in song as they delight in this glorious gospel. It's all summarized in chapter 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He was near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. That's, that's it, isn't it? That's the heart of the gospel. It's the invitation of the gospel to anyone and everyone who would hear that gospel. Forsake your wicked way, return to the Lord, and what will be the result? He will have compassion on you. No question, no doubt. But now, with this chapter, with chapter 56, Isaiah begins the final section of his book, this this section that will continue now to the end of the book. And it's here that he begins to tackle the problem of what J. Gresham Mason called the now and the not yet. The big problem with everything that Isaiah is saying to his readers was that as rich and as glorious, as as rich and full as this gospel was, when they believed it and put their faith in Jesus Christ as that coming servant of God, when they heeded the call and they turned from their sin and returned to the Lord, the big problem was that nothing changed. They were still in their exile. They were still a subject people living under the rule of a pagan king in a land far, far away from their home. They were still a captive people. Now, yes, we've heard those glorious promises that Isaiah has made telling of a day when Cyrus will give his proclamation and they will be freed from their captivity and they will return to the promised land. But but put yourself in the place of one of these exiles in Babylon. They hear what Isaiah is saying. They read this letter that he has written to them and they believe it. They're drawn in and they believe it. And then the next morning they open their door and what do they hear? They hear Babylonian voices. And what do they see? They see Babylonian power brokers. And they're not free to do what they want. They're still under the captivity of those who had taken them into exile. Nothing had changed. 
It's the same for us, isn't it? Let's think of a, an extreme example. A drug addict comes to Christ. He comes, he hears the gospel. It's the balm for his troubled heart. He believes it and he rejoices in Christ. The next day, he's still an addict. His body is still ravaged by chemical addiction. Now, yes, the gospel will gloriously enable him through the power of the Spirit to die to that addiction and secure a life freed from the captivities of that idol, but at that moment, his life is exactly the same. And maybe it will continue the same for a long time, right? Drug addiction takes us down into the depths of human existence, robbing and disfiguring, and maybe that man will always bear, bear the scars and marks of his former life. And it may take him a long, long time to get up out of the poverty into which his idol has led him. Or maybe think of a, a less extreme example. A single mother beaten down by life, struggling to support her family on a meager income. She hears the gospel. Her chains fall off. Her heart is free. She rises, goes forth, and follows Christ. But nothing's changed. It's still a grind every day to balance caring for her children and keeping her job and maintaining her house. Or maybe even still less extreme, the middle-class college student comes to know Christ. And at that moment, gloriously, the whole trajectory of his life has changed. His ambitions are changed. His hopes and his dreams are changed. He, he gets it, and he gets it with that youthful vigor. He wants to live for Christ, but nothing's changed. He still has parents that expect certain grades. He still has that one professor who just seems to have something against him, and his becoming a Christian has now only made it worse. He still needs to find a job after graduation. It's the problem of the now and the not yet. We can come to Christ and hear of the riches of the gospel and believe them, and we know that they are true. We feel it. We experience it. We experience the work of the Spirit as He teaches us just how impoverished we were in our sin and just how abundant this new life that we have in Christ is. But sometimes when that hits the reality of our day in and day out, there can be a cognitive dissonance. The two just don't seem to go hand in hand. They seem, even on one level, to be contradictory, and we struggle to reconcile them. So, what do we do? Well, here Isaiah addresses this issue. And what's his answer? What does he say to these exiles still living in captivity in Babylon? He says to them, live now in this present world as if the next world has already come. The exiles were not to wait until they had gone back to 
Palestine to live as the joyful and obedient people of God. We are not to wait until we get to heaven to live as the joyful and obedient people of God. But instead, that future reality is to bear on how we live in the present regardless of our circumstances. That's why Isaiah begins in verse 1 by saying to them, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. That's the foundational command that the rest of this passage seeks to tease out and apply. I read it backwards. Soon, that is not yet, but soon the salvation of God will come and His righteousness will be revealed. Therefore, now in the present, keep justice and do righteousness. Not keep justice and do righteousness when my salvation comes and my righteousness is revealed, but on the basis of the knowledge that soon, in the future, it will come in the present now, keep righteousness and do justice. In the coming, the coming, the knowledge of the coming, but still future reality, when our salvation is made full and manifest, that knowledge is to direct our conduct in this present age. And don't miss the preposition. Right, so much theology hangs on prepositions. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Right, this shouldn't really surprise us. This way of talking is all over the New Testament. Right, think about 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. You have a context in which a church has been disrupted and divided by false teachers. John is, is writing to people who are, who are weak and wounded, sick and sore. They've just been betrayed by brothers, maybe even elders in the church. The church has been divided, and, and what is John's counsel to them? Beloved, he says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. We are God's children now, John says. Glorious, wonderful, was the minute you put your faith in Christ, you're a child of God. But, he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. And what does that will be consist of? When, we appears, when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Mind-blowing, right? We could spend forever teasing that out. But then verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. The knowledge of that future glorious reality directs how we live in the here and now while we still await its appearing. Or think of Titus 2. The context, you remember Titus 1, 
One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, Paul says, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That's the context in which Titus is ministering, hardly a godly society. And in Titus 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great and God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. We still wait for the appearing of our blessed hope. We still wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing's changed. Titus is still living amongst evil beasts and liars by the testimony of Holy Scripture. But what is he to do? While he waits for that blessed hope, while he waits for that faith to become sight, What is he to teach his congregation to do? In the meantime, we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's the whole book of 1 Peter. What's the context of 1 Peter? Rising Nero, an emboldened persecution of the church. What is the whole book about? It's about helping new Christians understand how they are to live in the midst of an increasingly hostile culture, and specifically how to be obedient to God when nothing around them has changed. That's why the whole book of 1 Peter is anchored to that opening address to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That is not an address to converted Jews. It's not an address to those dispersed in the exiles throughout the Near East who have now come to Christ, right? It's clear from the rest of the letter that Peter is writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. Why would he greet them like that? For the purpose of identity formation. This is how they were to live in the present age as elect exiles, as citizens of another kingdom, simply passing through this present world. It's the very same thing that Isaiah wants his readers to understand. Regardless of our circumstances, of our lived experience, being reconciled to God by faith in Christ radically reorients our loyalties and fundamentally changes our sources of authority and compels us to live in a way that is shaped and directed by the salvation that we have received and the salvation that we will receive. That's why Isaiah here repeatedly summarizes this new way of life as, don't miss it, as keeping the Sabbath. Now, In our day, there is perhaps no commandment more neglected than the fourth commandment. Sinclair Ferguson once said that the fourth commandment has been so neglected 
that the North American church has, in effect, a novemologue instead of a decalogue. And if you ask many Christians in North America about their Sabbath observance, you will get a blank stare. It's just not on the radar of many Christians. And even for those of us who know of it conceptually, it's often regarded as a somewhat fluid or elastic command. Right? We'll acknowledge that Sunday is the day we go to church, but happily we'll do other things too. We'll see it as a marginal day. It's a time to get caught up on some work or maybe get ahead on the week that is to come. Maybe after church, we just think of it as a, as a second Saturday. As soon as that benediction is pronounced, then we can go out and eat. We can go and play sports. We can do whatever we want. And, and those who urge a more strict view of the fourth commandment are often accused of being legalists. But we have to understand that throughout Scripture, Spiritual well-being is often keyed directly to how the Sabbath is observed. If you're using the McShane reading plan just now, you're in Leviticus. And I'll admit it, Leviticus can be hard going. And there's, there's some strange things in there. But one thing you will notice is the often seemingly random mention of the Sabbath. You will be given instructions about food laws, and then there'll be a also keep the Sabbath. They'll be just dropped in at various points through it. This was a repeated command that was to anchor the welfare of Israel. Think about it in the prophets, right? We see it so directly in the prophets. Jeremiah 17. The prophet holds up the Sabbath as the litmus test of the people's spiritual state. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 17, is commanded by God to go and stand in the people's gate of Jerusalem, which is where the kings would come in and out of the city. And there, Jeremiah was to preach and say, if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever. And then in Jeremiah 17, verse 27, the warning, but if you do not listen to me, to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. This wasn't just a case of keeping one commandment, but rather it was the case of the Sabbath being the key by which spiritual health could be assessed. Think about Ezekiel teaching the exiles, and as he does so repeatedly, Ezekiel comes to them and, and shows them how their failure to observe the Sabbath underlay their condition in exile. Right, so Ezekiel 20, 
Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath, says the Lord, as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. And I said, I would pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. Right, and Isaiah goes on from there. This, he says to them, look, look at the faithfulness of Israel throughout the generations. How do we summarize the faithlessness of the wilderness generation? on their way to the promised land. They failed to keep the Sabbath. And then, we don't have time, but in eight more passages in Ezekiel, he circles back, drawing the same principle, showing them how they are guilty of the very same thing. How were they to understand their spiritual failure that led them into exile? They had failed to keep the Sabbath. Or think about Nehemiah. You got this glorious situation. Jerusalem's being rebuilt. The temple's being rebuilt. And then Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13, is in near despair because of what he sees. And what does he see happening? He sees the Sabbath being profaned. He says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. We can go on and on. I had a routine litmus test for the spiritual condition of the people of God throughout the Bible is how they view the Sabbath. And why is it so important that it could be itself just an encapsulation of the entire spiritual condition of those people? Why would Isaiah here specify it as the command that is to be central to the new way of life that the people of God must live in the present age? Well, for two reasons. One, because the Sabbath day itself is a foretaste of heaven, a foretaste of that future coming reality. And because, secondly, because properly observing the Lord's day requires the proper ordering of the other six days of the week. As one man put it, the Sabbath is a weekly dress rehearsal for heaven. What is the Sabbath day? It is a day of rest and worship. And commanding us in the fourth commandment not to do any work and not to employ anyone to work on our behalf, the Lord is intentionally disengaging us from the system of earthly security. It is, as you've heard me say before, the Sabbath is a disabling day. On the, on the Sabbath, the Lord removes from you any ability to advance or even maintain your life. It is a day in which you are intentionally cognizant 
that you are wholly dependent upon God. And that is good news. The Sabbath is a gift because it is a day that wrestles us free from the entanglements of the world and the temptations to go back to the old idols of work and money and status to find our security. It's a day that reminds us that our security is fundamentally found in our relationship to God through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a day that brings us out of that daily grind and brings us up into heaven to simply behold the wonders of our salvation, to simply behold the glories of our God. And you remember the two different rationales we have for the Sabbath in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It's the only commandment that differs. In Exodus 20, what's the rationale for keeping the Sabbath day? For the Lord made the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the Sabbath day. Rest on the Sabbath, God is saying, and remember your Maker. Remember that God is God and you are not. But what's the rationale in Deuteronomy 5? Keep the Sabbath day and remember your redemption. A day in which we are led to come back again to remember that we are who we are only by the grace of God that has wrestled us up out of the captivity of our sin and drawn us into the kingdom of Christ. It's why the apostles moved the Sabbath day from the last day of the week to the first day of the week, because every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is the day of our salvation. Every Sunday is the day we remember that on this day, our Lord rose from His grave, having secured our salvation. This is a day that is caught up in remembering who God is and remembering how we have been reconciled to Him through faith in Christ. It's a day that reminds us that this world is not our home. It's a dress rehearsal for a coming greater reality, a coming greater kingdom to which we are moving as exiles and sojourners in this present world. Do right, you remember how Jesus summarized the Sabbath in Mark 2? Again, keying the spiritual state of the people of God to how they observed the Sabbath. And in Mark 2, to the Pharisees who had placed so many restrictions on the Sabbath day that it was perhaps the most burdensome day of the week rather than being a day of rest. Remember what Jesus says? He says to them, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's the testimony of all Scripture. It is the gift of God to His people, a gift of His grace, a weekly reminder that punctuates our calendars and reminds us again and again that we are who we are by grace alone and that we are moving to that future kingdom, which Hebrews 4 calls our future Sabbath rest. This one day in seven is a foretaste of that greater promised land where we will be at complete and total peace, having obtained the joyful, worshipful, restful outcome of our salvation. But you understand the command for the, to observe the Sabbath day and keep the Sabbath is not just a command about one day. If you are to observe the Sabbath properly, then it means ordering the other six days of the week in a way that means that the Lord's Day is free from work or obligation. 
It's written that way, isn't it? In the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It is meaningful, significant, that that commandment does not start at verse 10. It doesn't start by saying the seventh day is a Sabbath day to to the Lord your God. It starts by saying, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day. It's not really a command about one day. It's a command about how all of life is ordered. A commandment that tells us that all of life is to be affected and informed by the salvation that is signified and anticipated on the Lord's day. Remember when I was a student, not long converted, I was early convinced of the preciousness of the Sabbath, the importance of observing the Lord's Lord's Day and keeping it, and I resolved in my mind to think of working, to think of studying on the Sabbath the same way that I thought of planning to work or study on the eighth day of the week. Nobody says to themselves, oh, it's okay, I'll just catch up on the eighth day, because there is no eighth day. It's not available for work. Neither is the first day of the week. And what that means is that the rest of life must then be shaped by that intentionality. Your determination to prioritize the Sabbath shapes how you work and rest the other six days of the week. Keeping the Sabbath ends up then shaping your whole week and as part of this rich gift of God's grace helps you to shape your whole life around your redemption. And this is not burdensome. Right? Why is the fourth commandment so neglected in our day? It is because to so many, Sabbath observance, Lord's Day observance sounds so restrictive. But look again at our passage. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. That word blessed is a word that comes from the the root for happiness. You've heard it said with the Beatitudes that you could replace that word blessed with the word happy there. It's, It's the same here. Happy is the man who does this. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And how does that psalm describe the blessedness, the happiness of that man? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its life does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. And if you've got a a fruit tree in your garden, you know this image right now. You've got a a lemon tree and an orange tree in our backyard. They're just young. This is their first year of putting on fruit. And you look at those, they've got tiny little lemons on them. It's a happy tree. It's, It's fruitful. It's joyful. Right? It's not a tree in winter that's struggling to make it through, having to, to bring all of its goodness back into its central core, its leaves falling off because it's just trying to stay alive. This is a tree that is abundant, it's fruitful, it's joyful, it's putting everything out to the very edges because it's delighting in its circumstances. That's the image, isn't it? 
Blessed is that man. Happy is that man. Joyful, fruitful, abundant. You lose nothing by ordering your life around your redemption. You lose nothing by ordering your life around the law of God. How is it that Paul described it in 1 Timothy 4? Verse 7, he says to Timothy, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness, he says, is of value in every way. There's no loss here. Right? This might mean changing your life, changing your priorities. Properly keeping the Sabbath might mean that you no longer do the things you used to do on Sundays, things that you enjoyed and things that you looked forward to. But here, what Paul says, you will lose nothing. It will only be gain. It will be of value in every way. Now, it's going to run counter to the expectations and values and loves and desires of the culture in which you live. But that's the point because you don't belong to this culture anymore. You don't belong to this world anymore. You have been saved out of it. You have been made citizens in the kingdom of heaven, and you are called now to be marked by the traditions and values and loves of the place that you now call home. There's so much more we could say about this, but in essence, what Isaiah is trying to communicate is that the gospel is not pie in the sky when you die. The gospel, the good news of Christianity is not simply that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you won't go to hell when you die. Now, that is true, gloriously true. That's chapter 53, that Jesus Christ bore the hell of His people that we might be forgiven and set free. But what Isaiah wants us to see is it's so much more than that. It's not just about what will come. It's about new life now. We don't just tread water until Christ returns or calls us home. In the here and now, in whatever situation we find ourselves in, we don't wait. We, now we pursue a way of life that demonstrates that our lives have been made new in Christ, that our hope is different, that we take our lead from an otherworldly source. In 1 Corinthians 15 last week, we read, we heard Paul say that if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, I think we can paraphrase that and turn it around and say, if we have hope only in the next life, we are of all people most to be pitied. The gospel does not just promise you good things in the world to come, but in the here and now, it comes and calls you to orient, orient your daily life around that new spiritual life that you have received in Christ. That's what Isaiah is seeing in these two verses, that having received such a rich salvation, how could we not then live in a way that gives all glory to God? Let's pray.